Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve, and uh, I am the lead pastor, and today we are going to be uh, finishing up our study in the book of Acts. So grab your Bibles, and let's flip over to the book of Acts. And I know some of you are like, Steve, you just put out a video telling us you were taking the month of July off. I know. I'm a liar. But I'm back. (laughs) This week, we're going to, I just saw an opportunity um, as I was wrestling with our preaching schedule and the rest of it, I decided to go ahead and and take this morning and, and finish up the book of Acts. I will be traveling over the next couple of weeks and taking a little bit of time away from the pulpit, um, but uh, was excited about uh, wrapping this up. We're going to Acts chapter 28, which is page 937 in, uh, in our Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And uh, we're going over to page 937. And we're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 28. Let's start in verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case, but because the Jews objected... I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against." When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. All right, you guys, 37 messages ago, um, we started our study in the book of Acts. Uh, it's been a couple of years, and we've taken some breaks as we have gone through to, to study some other areas. Um, and, um, and we started by looking at Jesus' commission in Acts 1.8. At the very, very beginning of Acts, right after Jesus uh, was raised from the dead, he met with his disciples and basically just said, look, I'm leaving for a while. Um, but I got a job for you, right? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on you. He's going to commission you and empower you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses 
locally in Jerusalem, regionally in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth globally. This is actually a a great outline for the whole book of Acts. As we've walked through this and studied it, uh, we started in the beginning, by looking at Acts 1 through 9, where the church exploded in, in Jerusalem right after the resurrection, right? Jesus rose from the dead, and, and, and there were ragtag disciples that were scattered on the night of, of his betrayal and, and his crucifixion. And, and when he rose from the dead, man, they came out and, and witnessed it with power. Tens of thousands, right? They, they grew from, from 12 core disciples to tens of thousands of believers at the very place, at the very time of the resurrection, right? One of the, one of the most powerful uh, apologetics for the reality of the resurrection, right there, right? At the very place, at the very time, the church exploded, right? Tens of thousands of believers um, and, and at this point, it remains almost exclusively Jewish, right? They are all in Jerusalem, and so they're all Jews or proselytes to Judaism. They were all in Judea. They're all familiar with the Old Testament Scripture, and, and the church is exploding, and it's still very homogenous up to this point until persecution arises. And, and then we move into Acts 10 through 20. Um, when Stephen was martyred, it began a, a season of persecution that scatters the believers out of Jerusalem. And as they're scattered, they, they take the gospel with them. And as a result, the gospel starts spreading outside of Jerusalem. Uh, it moves outside of its Jewish cocoon uh, into the surrounding regions. And, uh, and we see the birth of the church at Antioch. Um, the Antioch church was a crazy church. It was, it was the first time uh, believers, followers of Jesus, were called Christians. And it was because they started calling themselves Christians. It was because Antioch was this racially and culturally diverse church. All these people speaking different languages, coming from different backgrounds, and suddenly they were coming together in this family. They were sharing love with each other. They worshiped together, and they were all talking about this guy named Jesus Christ. And, and, and the surrounding community had no way to explain what they were seeing. This didn't happen. Diversity wasn't a value that was widely spoken about in the ancient world. People stuck with people who looked like them and spoke like them, right? And and so in Antioch, there was this new community of people growing, and and the surrounding unbelievers looked at them and just started calling them Christians because they had nothing else to call them. They had no other way to describe them. There there was this force that united them, and it was intriguing and and somewhat unsettling. And so in Antioch, you see the birth of of this new church, this racially and culturally diverse church that's unified, not around personal comfort, not around personal commonality, but around common faith. And they were radically different than anything the world had seen. And the Antioch church becomes the new center of Christianity, where it was Jerusalem for, for that first season, that that center now moves over to Antioch, and Antioch becomes the center of the new growth movement in in the church. And they become the church, the sending church. They send Paul out on his three missionary journeys. They send Barnabas and uh, and others that uh, are mentioned through there, and, and they become the home base for Paul's three missionary journeys. And we've studied those journeys. In each of those journeys, Paul basically circles around the the Mediterranean, uh, the upper part of the the, the Mediterranean Sea, and and, um, 
And you can just see the loop on top of a loop. There are three loops there. And, and he goes through and, and he shares the gospel and, and, and new communities of faith are started. We call that church planting, right? He plants the gospel and a, and a church grows out of it, right? Not a building, but a community of faith. And, and, and then he goes around and he comes back and he strengthens those churches. So he's starting and he's strengthening churches over the course of, of these three missionary journeys. And we ended last week. Aaron was preaching and he was in Acts chapter 20, and he was right at the end of his third missionary journey. And he was uh, saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders and offering them words of both encouragement and exhortation, warning them about the dangers and the challenges they would be facing uh, as he left, right? Because he was now on his way to Jerusalem, and there was a, a real sense of foreboding about it. And, and that was not without reason, right? I mean, he... he he is going to be betrayed um, in Jerusalem. And, and so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to summarize basically everything from there to the end of the book. Um, chapters 20 through 28 uh, really recount Paul's trip to Jerusalem, his arrest, and then a series of trials that ultimately take him to Rome. And as I've wrestled with this text and, and wrestled with the Spirit and, and thought about how to best preach it, I decided that at this point the best thing I can do is, is give you a summary of this section and then draw out what I think are some key themes. Um, if if huh, I reserve the right to come back and revisit these chapters in the future, if, if I feel like the Lord is grabbing my heart and saying we need to go spend some more time in them. But, um, but I want to give you a quick summary. What ends up happening is Paul does get to Jerusalem. Right? He is determined to go to Jerusalem, and, and he goes from city to city and place to place, and, and prophets are coming out and saying, if you go, um, you're going to be uh, bound. Right? You're going to be betrayed. You're, you're, going to, you're going to be imprisoned, which is really interesting when you think about it because the Spirit is driving him to Jerusalem, and the Spirit is sending prophets to warn him about going. The Spirit is both sending him into danger and warning him of the danger to come. Right? He, he is not promising Paul smooth sailing, and he's not trying to make it any easier for him because there is a challenge that Paul must go through. It is part of God's calling on his life. And so he goes to Jerusalem, and while he's there, he, he tries to, to do everything he can not to offend um, the Jewish leaders. And so he ends up going into the temple to do his purifications as a good Jew would. And, and while he's in the temple, uh, some Jewish people from abroad see him. And they've heard him preaching the gospel, and they, and they assume that he uh, is against Judaism. And so they accuse him of bringing a Gentile, uh, a non-Jewish person, into the temple, which is uh, a, a very high offense. Uh, and so they grab him, and they stir up the crowd, and they start saying, he brought a Gentile into the temple. And, and of course, every good Jew at that point gets riled up, and there's a, a big uproar, and they drag him out of the temple, and they're going to go kill him. Um, but the Romans... Uh, who are watching this step in. Uh, now remember, the Roman authority is the occupying force at this time. And their goal, so the people that are in power, their goal is to keep the peace. If their region can stay peaceful, then Rome doesn't notice them and, and they get rewarded, right? These are occupied territories and their job is basically to keep them quiet, right? Rome does not want Jerusalem or Judea or any of these areas on its radar. It just wants them quiet and paying tributes. And so when the Romans see this uproar, they step in and they arrest Paul, both to protect him from the mob, but also to find out what he's being accused of to see if it is a capital offense. This begins his three-year journey 
to Rome. The Jewish leaders over the course of this three years continue to bring accusations against Paul. It's the same core accusation. It evolves a little bit. It it gets a little bit more embellished. It changes a little bit, but it's the same core accusation. They even at one point hire a bunch of assassins to try to kill him, uh, to intercept him, and and, uh, the Romans find out about this, and so they move him farther and farther away from Jerusalem um, to both protect him, um, but also to, to pacify uh, the Jewish people. And, and over the course of this process, he, he appears before the, the Roman council. He appears before Felix the govern, governor. He, he even appears before Agrippa the king. And, and each time, he uses the occasion to share the gospel, right? He doesn't get up there and primarily give a defense of himself. He begins by saying, look, I'm being falsely accused. And the reason is because I preached this message. And then he expounds the message, right? So he takes every opportunity he's got to share the good news of Jesus, right? That, that God has sent a savior, that God has sent a Christ, a Messiah. And he shares the gospel persuasively and powerfully. And um, at each point, when he gets to the, to the point of the resurrection, that becomes the point of conflict. It's no different back then as it is today. It was no easier for them to believe in the resurrection than it is for us. Every time he got to the point of the resurrection, they were both intrigued, but also a little put off. Like, okay, that doesn't happen. All right, well, let's talk more about this. And, and, and he continues reasoning with them. The Romans kept finding no fault in him as they examined him, but they also refused to release him because they found in him a powerful way to pacify the Jews. So they kept him imprisoned. And, and they did this because um, they were appeasing the Jewish leadership. The last thing they wanted was to release Paul, even if it was the right thing to do, if it was going to stir up and create more turmoil in the community. And so um, they, they kept him in captivity uh, to pacify the Jewish leadership. But here's the thing, he was a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, he was afforded certain protections uh, that a non-Roman citizen wouldn't have. And so they had to uh, not just protect him, but in some ways um, were even bound to, to bring him uh, certain uh, protections because of his Roman citizenship. And finally, when Paul appealed to Caesar, it was like pulling a lever that, that they had to, to respond. When he appealed to Caesar, so any Roman citizen, when they were accused of a capital offense had the opportunity to appeal their case directly to Caesar. Now, this was a really risky thing to do because generally you didn't want to be on Caesar's radar, right? You don't want to be the blip on his radar that's taking up time, some of his time and bringing his attention because if he finds that you've done it inappropriately, you're probably not just going to die. You're going to die a really, really bad way. Um, but it is his way of, of basically triggering this. Paul feels like the Spirit is leading him to Rome. And by appealing his case to Caesar, he guarantees himself uh, a trip to Rome. And so uh, the leaders, as a result, are bound to send him. And so they send him under armed guard uh, to Rome. The last couple chapters, like 26, 27 of the book of Acts, uh, Luke spends quite a bit of time describing it. Um, not surprisingly, Paul has a, a fairly adventurous trip to Rome because Paul um, he, he, you know, they're, they're in a ship and, and they're sailing and a northeaster storm comes in and, and uh, they get blown off course uh, for two weeks. Like, apparently the storm is so bad that they can't tell at points night from day. Um, 
I don't even want to know what it's like to be out on, on, out on the sea during a storm like that, right? The wind is blowing, the sky is dark, there's rain, you can't tell the difference between the rain and the waves. It's so bad that they throw everything overboard, including all their provisions, because they're taking on so much water, they're afraid they're going to sink, and they are, they are afraid of, for their lives. And during this whole time, the Spirit is speaking to Paul, and Paul is speaking to them, saying, look, your lives are protected because mine is protected. You have a level of protection because God is taking me somewhere, and, 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 and so you just need to obey my voice, do what I say, and, and we'll get there safely. And after two weeks, um, they end up uh, seeing an island, and Paul says, run the ship aground, and we'll get to the island. And um, the Roman soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners. Uh, it was better to kill a prisoner than to lose a prisoner um, because their life was on the line. Uh, but because of Paul, all of their lives were protected. And, and after the shipwreck, they all made it to shore. Turns out they were on the island of Malta, uh, which is just south of the Italian peninsula. And um, the adventures don't stop. You know, they're gathering wood. The, the natives of the island were very friendly to them. We're helping them out, and Paul is helping gather wood. And as he's gathering wood, uh, why not? A viper is in the sticks and, and jumps out and bites his hand. And, um, and the natives were like, well, see, that proves he's guilty because he escaped death, but he's, God's still determined to kill him. Um, and so they watch him very closely, but he doesn't swell up. He doesn't die. He just shakes the viper off into the fire, and he turns out to be fine. So then they say he must be a god. I mean, these are just little interesting stories that, that are typical of Paul's life. I mean, it is really just crazy, and, and Luke recounts it in, in a lot of detail. They they spend three weeks on the island and then jump on a cargo ship that takes them to Rome. And when Paul lands in Rome, he rents himself a house. As a Roman citizen, he was under house arrest, but he did have to provide for himself. He had to rent his own house. He had to, to buy his own food. And so people had to uh, serve him and care for him during this period of time. This would have been right around uh, AD 60 when he landed. So right around uh, 30 years after the resurrection of Christ, he finally lands in Rome. And that's where our passage picks up. Three days after he lands in Rome, he calls the Jewish leadership to him and says, hey, let's talk. I'm here because I've been accused of things I didn't do, but more importantly, I'm here because I have a message. And I'm compelled to share that message with you, the message of Jesus, the risen Savior. And then the book ends. Kind of a sudden weird ending, isn't it? right? Paul's under house arrest. It says, yeah, he spent two more years under house arrest, freely sharing the gospel. And then it just ends, right? I mean, we don't find out his, his climactic meeting with Caesar. We never hear about that. We don't, we don't hear about whether or not the case went his way, whether Caesar was like, you annoy me, you're dead, or whether he said, um, no, you're good, man, you're free. We don't know. Um, what we do know is that Luke ended it here on purpose, right? So he arrived in Rome right around 60 AD. He was under house arrest for at least two years. That's what um, Luke ends up telling us, so around 62 AD. We don't know exactly what happened after that, but most evidence points to Paul having been beheaded by Nero uh, sometime after the great fire of Rome, so that would have been in 64 but before the end of Nero's reign, which would have been in 68. So somewhere in that four-year window, pretty much all the evidence points to him having been beheaded in Rome. In fact, evidence points to both he and Peter being killed in that same window of time, uh, Paul being beheaded and Peter being crucified by Nero. 
But Luke doesn't tell us any of that. He doesn't give us any of that information. Why? It's not because Luke didn't know. Because the book of Acts was written somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D., about 15 years, 12 to 15 years after these events took place. So that means it's intentional. That means Luke left us hanging at the end of Acts 28 intentionally. And I think, honestly, there's a pretty obvious reason. Because Luke is showing us how the gospel is moving from, from, from being local to being regional to being global. Jesus' commission at the beginning, I want, you to take, I want you to be my messengers to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And, and, and Paul has now taken the journey toward the ends of the earth. He is now moving toward the uh, political and cultural power of their day and age in order to share the gospel that it can become the launch point to reach the rest of the world. But there are a couple things that are obvious. What happened to Paul in Luke's mind is obviously not the primary thing because this is not Paul's story. It isn't that Paul, it isn't Paul that's the point, it's it's the gospel. Luke leaves the account open-ended. And I think he did it for us. Almost 2,000 years later, as we come to this text and we study it, we're given the same gospel. And we're given the same mission. Be disciples who make disciples. Be my witnesses, locally, regionally, and globally. I think we're living out the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 28 is left open-ended because the mission isn't over. The message still carries a power that needs to be shared. There's a reason that, um, that we're still here and Jesus hasn't returned. This isn't dead history. This isn't just interesting fact. It is a living message that is on a living mission. And Trailhead Church is part of that mission. We started this church in the same way that the church in Antioch was started, with the hope that it would become a springboard for many, many more to hear the good news of Jesus and become believers and followers, that it might become a regional source of, of actually helping the regional reach of the gospel, more church planting, and the global reach of sending people around the world to share the good news. That means Trailhead Church is part of this story, and, and that means you and I are part of this story. When we read the book of Acts and we read about the giants of the faith, the ones that, man, how can we relate with, right? Paul and, and Peter and James and, and these guys. And, and then we read about other guys like, like Timothy and Titus and Silas and Sylvanius. Your name is in there. My name is in there, the 29th chapter. It's the same message on the same mission, and God is doing the same thing he was doing then. He's just doing it now. Different culture, different language, different time, different people. But in the same way the center of the church moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, it is still moving today. The church is not regionally bound. There is not a single center and core to the movement of the gospel. The Spirit is still at work, and we are part of that story. Followers of Jesus, 
That's why we're still here. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet. That's why when you became a believer, he didn't just be like, yeah, great, come to me, right? And rapture, you're out of the earth. It, it doesn't, it's not the way it works, right? You're left here because the message is your mission. This is why you're here. A hundred years from now, this is going to be what matters. This is the mission that matters. This is the purpose that defines who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. What you do with it makes a difference. Because we are living out the 29th chapter of the book of Acts. To close our study in this book, though, um, I'd like to consider one of the main themes running through the whole book. And we see it reflected in Paul's final words. Again, none of this is accidental. Luke, uh, the final words Luke recounts Paul speaking are pretty harsh. They're words of judgment. Take a look again at, at verses 26 through 28. where Paul is speaking to the Jewish leaders, and I'm going to begin at the end of 25. Paul made one statement that ended up ending the conversation. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes, they can, with their ears, they can barely hear. And with their eyes, they, their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. You have eyes, but you've stopped seeing. You have ears, but you've stopped hearing. You have a heart that feels, but your heart has grown dull. It's got an anesthetic that dulls it. Paul's speaking to the Jewish leadership in Rome. He's called them to his home. He's under house arrest, and he calls them in, and he shares the gospel with them. He, he, he argues persuasively. He pours out his heart to them. He opens the scripture to them. And some become believers, and some have more questions and start wrestling. And, and we can only guess. It's not recounted here, but, but the same pattern that he's experienced previously over and over and over again, no doubt played out here, that some actually became violently opposed to him. And we know that it's not primarily because they didn't like what he had to say. It was because what he had to say threatened their view of the world and their place in it. It threatened their position of privilege and comfort and power. You guys, Luke ended this letter with these words intentionally because I think it is both an explanation and a warning. It explains why the Jewish leaders, who were God's people, so violently opposed this work of God. And it warns us as the people of God today that if we're not careful, 
we're in danger of doing the same thing. Think about it, you guys. When Jesus came as a messenger, he came first um, born of a Jew to the Jews, right? He came to the people of God. And he came with a message, and that message was revolutionary in nature. It was incredible, radical good news. But it was anything but friendly to any kind of view of the world that was, was meant to do life without God. He, he came and, and he shared the good news of the kingdom, and that gospel spread. And after he was delivered up for crucifixion and rose again from the dead, he, he then entrusted that message to his disciples, right? Same mission. Fuller message, same message, but now more fully developed because the Savior actually has died and risen again. He entrusts the message of God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness, God's new kingdom breaking into this old and broken world to his disciples, and they carry it out. And that message receives resistance. The Bible has this uh, world, uh, this, this, well, uh, Christians use this term, worldliness. I'm sure you've heard this. Um, it's a loaded term, right? When Christians talk about worldliness, they're often talking about um, things doing with human culture, right? Forms of entertainment, movies, places where you might eat out, right? Back in the day, I remember being warned about going to restaurants that had open bars because of worldliness. It's corrupting, right? Even if you're not over there drinking, other people are, and you're supporting that establishment. And by supporting that establishment, you are indirectly supporting the drunkenness of others. That's worldliness. Any form of human culture that we find offensive and might possibly lead to sin. That's such a short-sighted view of worldliness. Worldliness, um, biblically, right? When, when it says that, that um, for God so loved the world, God, John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, right? Later in John, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, the world hates me and the world will hate you too because you are from me. God loves the world, and the world hates God. The word for world there is the Greek word cosmos, and it doesn't speak of the physical globe. We often interpret it as meaning the people of the earth, right? When, when it says, for God so loved the world, we just automatically put in the people of the world. God so loved the people of the world. Kind of true. The word cosmos, though, speaks of the systems of the world. Right? That Greek word specifically means the, the systems of the world. So it's the people and the, and, and the systems they create to do life. God created us essentially as cultural beings. Right? God created us to be people and to create systems to do life. He gave us the, right, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Right? When he created us, he put us in a garden. What's a garden? It is a cultivated place of wildness. It is culture. He gave us the gift of culture, and then he gave us all the raw materials of life, and he said, take this gift, tend it, care for us, and push it out. Take the gift of culture and be cultural. Create more. Create systems of doing life. 
And in the beginning, those systems were designed to flow from hearts that were dependent on God. Hearts that that found great joy in worship in God, humility before God, resting in and celebrating the glory of God. But when we rebelled against God, our need to create culture didn't go away, but now we needed to create culture that wasn't dependent on God, but independent from God. We had to create systems of trying to find life without the source of life being intimately connected to us, being alienated from God because of our sin. We now look to the things that God created to do for us, what only God can do to be for us, what only God can be. The systems of doing life without God are the essence of worldliness. Worldliness isn't just going out and being in a place where somebody can do something wrong. Worldliness is a way of doing life that equips us to do life without God. Worldliness is is the systems we create to find meaning and purpose and security and joy without the God who gives all those things. We look instead to our bank accounts and to our jobs and to our relationships and to all these temporal things, and we look to those things and we say to those things, you will be God for me. You will provide for me what God was supposed to provide. It's a heart of idolatry. It's a heart of rebellion. It's a heart that is hostile toward the Creator God, the source of life. Because we can't create systems for doing life independently from God and simultaneously love God. We can't lean into our systems of of significance and power and influence and comfort that are all designed to be found apart from God and yet at the same time, worship God. As a result, the resistance against the gospel, listen to me, the resistance against the gospel comes from worldliness. And we see that from unbelievers and the people of God. Right? So like when when the gospel came to Ephesus... And, and the temple makers of Artemis, and the, the, the idol makers of Artemis, the, the, they found that their income was being threatened because the gospel was spreading and so many people were becoming believers. They saw their, their market share reduced. Fewer people were buying their idols. right? And so they rose up in revolt. There was a huge riot in Ephesus against the gospel. It wasn't because of the message. It was because the message threatened their system. It was because their income, their source of importance, their their place of significance was being threatened. They got together and rioted and said, look, we're losing money and people think less of our city and our God. It was an existential crisis in which their identity was being threatened by the gospel. Their sense of significance, their, their source of income, their place of comfort was being threatened by the gospel. And we see that same exact thing happening from the Jews. The gospel comes in and people become believers and followers of Jesus. And and this becomes threatening to the religious leaders because now they have less market share. They're not selling idols. They're selling their reputation. They're not looking for greater personal income. They're looking for greater personal glory, greater personal influence. 
a greater market share of political power. And when the gospel came in and started undermining their worldliness, their way of doing life without God, they became violently opposed. Think about the irony, you guys. These are the people to whom God had entrusted the law and the covenants of grace. They were his people, his peculiar people, his chosen people. They were the the people group of earth that God had chosen and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you a way to approach me and to worship me. I will reveal myself progressively to you so that you will come to know me in a greater and greater degree. And when the greatest revelation arrived, Jesus, they revolted because their religion had become worldliness. Their worship of God had become their way of doing life without God. Their religious practices had become a substitute for genuine faith. Jesus, who is called the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, and he was called this because he was the promised Savior to the Jewish people to come from them and to come for them. And yet when the blessing arrived, they saw it as a curse, not a gift to be received, but a threat to be destroyed. And we see that pattern played out through the book of Acts. And again, I want to make it very clear, this is not a Jewish problem. It is a human problem. God's work is resisted and fought against wherever and whenever it threatens our structures of power, influence, comfort, and personal meaning both religious and irreligious, when the values of the kingdom of God conflict with the values of our personal little kingdoms, when it looks like God's agenda is not fully in line with ours, whether his demands get in the way of our ambition and our passions or or it messes with our plan for a low-maintenance, hassle-free life, we get defensive. And as religious people, we often become self-righteously defensive. You guys, the most violent opposition against God, the most violent opposition against God, against his kingdom, and against his agenda comes from his people. All you have to do is look at the history, and it will help you understand the reality of today. The greatest opposition against the work of grace are people who have claimed grace and have stopped responding to it. When we see, or think we see, but we stop seeing. When we hear, but we stop hearing. When we claim to know, but our hearts have become dull. When we talk about God's love and it doesn't undo our pride. When we talk about God loving the outsider, but we refuse to listen to the people in the margins. 
When we talk about God being a God of righteousness, but refuse to examine our own systems that perpetuate abuse and suffering. When we talk about grace and simultaneously feel entitled to more. More glory, more personal comfort, more personal security, more personal influence, more personal wealth. When we say we follow Jesus, Jesus of the cross, but despise laying down our lives, despise the sacrifice that the gospel requires. We are in danger. We are in danger. This isn't just an explanation that helps us understand how the people of God could get it so radically wrong to the point that they are actually crucifying the messengers of God. Beheading them, crucifying them, torturing them, lying about them, abusing them, seeking to undermine them at every turn. The very people of God undermining the work of God in the name of God. It's not just an explanation of what has happened. It is a warning for what can and will happen. How prideful would it be to think that every generation of God's people has faced this struggle and we would be exempt? That every generation of God's people has struggled with substituting religion for faith. And we wouldn't struggle. There is no greater consistent threat to the gospel than the people of God who have stopped loving God. They talk about it. They go through the motions. They have their religious behaviors, they have their theological knowledge, but they have hearts that have grown dull and no longer are undone by the love of God responding in humility to grace. They are the greatest danger to the work of God and the workers of God. The greatest danger that we face in America today are not leftist elitists or right-wing nuts. The greatest danger we face today are believers who aren't walking in their faith. People of grace who aren't responding to grace. People who claim the love of God but aren't undone by that love. People who are more concerned with protecting their power, their place, their comfort, their influence, and their prestige instead of laying those things down for the glory of God and the good of others. People who claim to follow the Christ of the cross, but despise the cross of Christ. You guys, we've been entrusted a message. It is the most profound message ever given to humankind, the message of a God on mission to love, to redeem and restore, to give grace, to love those who are unworthy of love, to restore those who are unworthy of being restored. And that's why I have hope. And that message compels me. 
But even as I am compelled, I know that there are tendencies in my own heart to pull back, to push back into the worldliness that has shaped me, that is so alluring to me, the way of doing life without dependency on the God of life to live for my glory instead of his, to live out my agenda instead of his, to to dream up what it means to be significant and purposeful and meaningful instead of submitting and yielding and facing what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There's no greater consistent threat to the gospel than the people of God who have stopped loving God, people who have stopped responding to grace, the people of the gospel who have stopped living out the implications of that message and have stopped sharing that message, have stopped responding to that message, and instead focus on securing and protecting their own blessing instead of seeking to be a blessing. You guys, the message of Acts is incredibly relevant to us today. It was incredibly unsettling in the first century. It is incredibly unsettling today. We should be shaken by this. Not undone, shaken. That our ears might hear, that our eyes might see, that our hearts might not be dull. That we would not just talk about the love of God without responding to the love of God. That we would be undone by grace. So I hope this morning you hear an invitation and not a condemnation. Because the message of grace is always an invitation to more. More life. More forgiveness. More joy. And all it requires is a response. Not a performance. You don't have to go fix your life. You don't have to go, man, I, if you're, whatever it is that's condemning you, that, that's not what's... The only thing that separates you from the love of God is a lack of response to the love of God. This morning, let's hear the invitation to once again humble our hearts and respond to this incredible message of love and grace. And if we don't even know how, if our hearts are so cold, if we have just settled into religious behavior, if we would just come to this God and say, will you awaken my heart? We have in that plea the first step of humility. And God gives grace to the humble while he resists the proud. Let's humble ourselves this morning. Let's humble ourselves in the weight of this this horrible history. Let's humble ourselves and in the face of this incredible warning that faces us today. Let's humble ourselves before a God who loves us, who wants to recreate us in the image of his Son. You guys, we live in a culture in crisis, and the message we have been entrusted still carries the power of resurrection. For our hearts, for our neighbors' hearts, for our community, for our nation. The culture needs us to be the church, a community of grace, undone by love and set free in generosity. People drinking deeply of the love of God and sharing freely and generously of that love. Let me close with some more prayer.
and put some questions up on the screen to help lead our reflection time. We'll share communion in a moment. We'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. That even as we come to the end of the book of Acts and listen to these hard words Paul spoke to God's people so many years ago that our hearts would respond not in self-defense, not in self-condemnation, not in fear, not in judgment toward others, but in humility. Knowing that we are a people of great need who have a Savior who gives us a great gift. And the more we understand the depth of our brokenness, the more we understand the depth of our sin, our rejection of you and our rebellion against you, the more we come to appreciate the beauty of grace and the profound implications that our Savior is greater than all our sin. Lord, free us into gratitude. May your grace break the chains of entitlement on our hearts of fear and self-protection that we might move out on the generosity of the mission and love, freely love, as we have been loved. Yes, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.